So what we're going to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work taking a look at a little bit of a different series, jumping into something. Uh, as most of you guys know, it's the season coming up to uh, Christmas, and what we're going to do, it's typically or commonly called Advent. Uh, we're going to spend some time over the next couple of weeks really focusing on what it means to really gauge and reorient our hearts to understanding uh, what it is and what happened when God came into this world. So um, I'm going to pray. As soon as I'm done praying, I'll have you guys, if you don't have Bibles, you can raise your hands. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys some Bibles. And uh, we're going to take a look at a handful of different verses. So typically what we do on Sunday mornings, we take books in the Bible and we just simply go through them uh, line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We call it expositional preaching. Uh, the next few weeks, this is going to be more topical, more of a focus upon a theme. And the theme is the coming of Jesus into this world. Uh, the idea of Advent is we're going to be breaking it down and be taking a look at three main concepts that Advent really teaches us and talks to us about. Uh, it really... We're going to be focusing on the promises that God made to the people of Israel, as well as the promises that God makes to us. Uh, we'll be taking a look at next week the concept of waiting. Uh, in other words, sort of the in-between time between promises are made and the fulfillment of those things, that in-between time that we love so much called waiting. Um, and then finally, we'll take a look at the week before e- uh, Easter, uh, whatever it's called, Christmas. Uh, the, just the subject of the arrival, the arrival of Christ and what that means and why that's so significant and why it's such great news. Not just good news, but it's great news. So let me pray. Ushers will come forward, hand out Bibles to you guys if you need them, and then we'll be jumping and taking a look at some of the passages. So God, we ask for your help right now. We ask that you would give us, God, wisdom, give us strength, uh, help our minds to be open to understanding who you are, what you've done for us. God, that today would not just simply be about uh, pounding through some scriptures, but God, that our hearts would be open, our eyes would see, God, your beauty, your greatness, and it would capture us, change us. Hearts would be transformed here this morning. So God, we give you this morning, we ask that you would make your ways known to us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So... To some degree, I think I want to start with this kind of question, like why, why even spend some time coming up to Christmas and focus on this season called Advent? First of all, the idea of Advent is not a biblically mandated type of a season. Um, there's no passage in the Bible that says, thou shalt keep the season before uh, Christmas called Advent and do it. It's just one of the things that throughout the church, historically the church has done. It's not just Catholic. It's really all throughout the church. They've Many, many uh, denominations and brothers and sisters in Christ have spent a significant amount of time, typically around four weeks or so, coming up to Christmas just to focus on Jesus, upon the great miracle that we call uh, the birth uh, or what we call the incarnation. And the reason why we do that, especially the reason why we want to do that, is because we live in a day and age in a lot of ways that is already conditioning your heart for Christmas. Do you guys know that? Maybe you don't know that because we're, it's just part of our culture. In other words, it's kind of like the old David Foster Wallace you know, article that he wrote about a fish in water. Like the fish doesn't know it's actually wet because it's in water. It's like we oftentimes have a hard time discerning the culture around us. But if I can somehow jump out of culture, if we can just somehow look at it from a different angle... The fact of the matter is, is that the culture around us is already shaping your mind to think about Christmas. You know that? It's causing you to think about Christmas in materialistic perspectives. It's causing you to think about it in commercialism. It's causing you to think about it in a way of just consuming. That's how it's causing you to think about it. 
And unless you do something different to break out of that mold, to break out of that system, then that's how you're going to think about it. So really the idea of Advent behind this, what motivates us is to say, let's think differently about this season, the way the culture wants us to think about it. And here's one simple reason why. The way the culture at large wants us to think about Christmas is not life-giving. Would you agree? Would you agree with that? It's not life-giving. It sucks life. It's like a vampire. It sucks life out of you rather than gives life to you. And I think for us to reorient our mind to think about what Christmas is in a different uh, biblical, gospel, idealized type of a way would actually be life-giving. That's what I'm going to propose to you. Let's think differently about Christmas because if we don't think differently, we will fall into a default mode, which is not life-giving. We want to be people that feast our souls upon something that's life-giving. We want to be life-giving people that are able to bring blessing in other people's lives. So Advent just simply means coming, and it's sort of the celebration uh, two ways. We find ourselves kind of in between two uh, seasons, one between the coming and the arrival of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and then the second season, which is the second coming of Jesus, uh, the return, we would call it, of the king. And we kind of find ourselves in between sort of the already, meaning Jesus already came, and the not yet, meaning Jesus has not yet come. So we find ourselves kind of very similarly in a waiting game. So we've got promises that we are holding on to and clinging to, but we find ourselves waiting the arrival of the soon-to-return king. And in between that, we find ourselves kind of in this uh, challenging stage we call waiting. So Advent helps us to identify with those in the past that were also in the same boat as us, meaning they were given these promises by God, hoping, looking forward to a king. Now, again, remember Jesus' birth was not in a vacuum, Uh, that there were people that came, and it talks about throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus came just as according to the scriptures had foretold. So in other words, Jesus' coming was actually something that was prophesied. So what I want to focus on today really is the subject of promise in light of the context of Advent, the subject of promise in light of the context of Advent. To begin with, I want to start with a quote from a theologian, a guy by the name of Walter Brugman. He says something really interesting about Advent. It says this, and I agree with it, and it kind of comes into the rest of the passages that we'll be taking a look at this morning. Here's what he says. Advent doesn't begin in celebration or in a shopping spree, but in a community of hurt people. It is the voice of those who know profound grief, who articulate it and do not cover it up, but this community of hurt knows where to speak It's grief. And because the hurt is expressed to the one whose rule is not in doubt, the community of hurt is profoundly transformed in a community hope. Isn't that a great statement? No, it's not. (laughs) It's almost like I said, don't you guys love taxes? (laughs) The point of the matter is, is it's a great statement, all right? It's a great statement. The fact of the matter is, that's what the church is. The church is a community of grieving, broken, hurting people that are trying to articulate and make sense of this world that is filled with pain. Yet it's different because everybody in this world processes grief and suffering and hardship. Everybody. We don't just simply 
uh, take a numb approach to it. But the fact of the matter is we either approach it in one of three ways. We either approach it in a way in which we try to check out, we try to disconnect, remove ourselves, detach, the idea of detachment, the way of uh, some, maybe in some ways, kind of Eastern philosophies uh, to kind of say, I'm going to simply remove my mind from the pain, from the suffering, or detach myself from those things which bring my life joy because there's sort of this dual mentality of some things bring me joy, but the same things that bring me joy also bring me great grief. But if I can detach myself from those things, and we do that in the West by getting drunk, by taking drugs, by watching 14 episodes of Breaking Bad at one sitting, we do it in all sorts of different ways. But it's all form of detachment. It's all form of just simply detaching ourselves from the pain and the suffering and the hurt. The other way is, I would say, kind of as more of the modernized, Christian eyes type of a perspective, meaning what we do is we just sort of ignore it away. We try to say, well, everything's great. Isn't Jesus awesome? Doesn't the Bible say, blessed are those who follow God, because life is just amazing. So we have this tendency to sort of act like everything's wonderful, but it's not wonderful. And what we see is that the Bible actually gives us another storyline or another narrative by which we can adopt as our own. It's the narrative that basically says life is very hard. There is suffering. There are moments of grief and loss. We've got to know how to deal with that. I just watched the news article this past week, and it basically said something to the fact that um, grief, loss, and violence all, all go hand in hand. And it was talking about a community where there's nothing but great poverty, and within this uh, poverty, it was a really moving video. If you're my Facebook friend, I posted the video on it. It's just really powerful. Um, and in it was this uh, African-American community where most of the young children have had their fathers shot and killed. And here's these kids, maybe like 8, 9, 10, 12, um, trying to process and uh, in, in the moving video, the, the lady is basically trying to help them to process that grief. And in that, I was just like, man, this is exactly, this, this, is, this is where our world's at. Like, as adults, because we don't process grief, because we don't know what to do with our pain, our suffering, and our sorrow, uh, we just try to detach from it. We try to act as if everything is wonderful, but we really never really get to the heart of it. Instead, we find ourselves dying inside, broken inside, and yet... What Advent is, it's, a, it, it's, it's, a, it's God's voice speaking into a world that is steeped in deep suffering and loss and grief. And it offers the hope of a different tomorrow. It offers the hope of a, of a new life. And this is really what the gospel is all about. So what I want to do is I want to basically take a look at Two things. We'll take a look at two main promises. I mean, there's lots of promises that we could have focused on. Um, I'm just going to focus on two. And the method to my madness, if you would, is really kind of think of it this way. If you want to think of it in terms of telescoping concepts or telescoping ideas. So we're going to start with one uh, simple idea and it's going to telescope out from this. So I'm going to start with Adam and Eve, the story of Adam and Eve. And I'm going to kind of telescope out from there to the story of Israel, and then what we'll do is we'll end or conclude in the subject uh, or the reality of who Jesus is as the fulfillment. So let's first of all jump right in and find our story in the book of Adam and Eve. And to do this, we've got to take a look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. 
So I'll summarize a little bit of the backstory. So most of us are probably a little bit familiar with it. If you're not familiar with this, it'll be news to you. But the reality is that God basically created all things good. So in short, if you want to think of it this way, the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is really about the story of a good God making a good creation. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of this whole creation project going off rail, going off track, becoming bad. Something breaks, something snaps, something goes awry. And this is what we see that happens in the Genesis story, that it's a good God with a good creation, high hopes, good intentions, good desires for all things. But within that, God gave Adam and Eve a choice. And that choice was sort of summarized within the simple command, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all sorts of speculations arise out of that. Like, why would God, if God's so good, why would God create a tree that's poisonous? And why would God make a poison apple in the middle of the tree? Well, for one, we don't know it's an apple. So any rumors you heard about apples is simply not true. Two, we don't even know if it's poison. Like, I, I remember hearing Bible studies. This is like total, like, uh, sidetrack. But I remember hearing Bible studies about one guy, like, speculating, well, well, we think that there was like poison in the uh, fruit that they ate. And it's like, we don't know any of this. But the point of the matter is, I think none of that is true. What I think really is true is what's going on here is it boils on this. God says, if you obey my voice, you'll live. If you obey your voice or any other voice that misleads you away from my voice, then it won't lead you to life. The opposite of life is death. It won't bring you joy. It will bring you the opposite of joy, which is brokenness. And this is really the story that we find ourselves in the book of Genesis is that God gives Adam and Eve this choice to partake or to avoid this tree. And they ended up partaking of the tree uh, through being tempted by the devil who is somehow speaking through a serpent. And again, there's lots to this story. I have no idea how to reconcile with our ways of understanding this type of stuff. So I just simply look at it and say, it's there, it's real, it happened. So what typically takes place in the story in verse 14 of chapter three, it says, it's then the Lord God spoke, he speaks. And he speaks to three, speaks to the three main characters that are already involved in this story. It's the serpent, it's Adam and Eve. And he speaks to the serpent. He says, cursed are you. In verse 15, is this great, promise that God makes. Now, remember, we talked about the emphasis of the promise. So God, in the midst of this whole creation project breaking down, God speaks a word of promise, a hope, that even though it's gone broken, even though it has begun to come undone, God immediately leaves no lag time and says, but I'll make it right. And here's how I'll make it right. And he makes his promise. And he says this in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the picture of the matter that's going on here is that God promises. He says, I promise that there will come one. At this point, we don't know who he is or what he's all about. But what we do know, he's going to be from the offspring of the woman. The seed of the woman, which is a a really strange phrase because women don't have seed. Uh, It's biology 101. Women don't have seed. They don't? They have an egg. Um, But I digress. Again, the point of the matter is, is that from the seed of a woman, and again, I think these are already hints at the fact of what we would call the virgin birth, that Jesus was born from a mother that was not known by a man. He was, she was virgin. 
that the point of the matter is, is that God says in his promise that I promise to bring this thing back into a source or a place of healing. And through one who will come from the seed of a woman, and what will happen is there will be a simultaneous crushing of the head of the serpent while he himself will be crushed. That's all we know. That's all we know at this point in the story. I mean, we know more to the story because we read on this side of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. But at this point, this is all that we know in the story, that God makes his promise that this thing that has begun to collapse in on itself, this thing that has begun to implode and break and come undone and begin to enter into the source of fraying and God promises to make it right. And then God goes on to say to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children and your desire will be for the husband and he ultimately shall rule over you. And some scholars have kind of seen this, that sort of there's a a dual problem that's going on here. On the one hand, as a result of man and woman, Adam and Eve, turning away from God, uh, there is a deep void, a deep absence within their heart, and that deep void or absence is now going to attempt to be filled by alternative things. On the one hand, the woman, she will try to fill this deep void with relationships. In this case, in her case, it was with her husband, that her desire will be for the man. She will want deeply for him to satisfy her. And for the man, because he has a void, a deep absence, what he will try to fill that deep void and absence with is power that he will rule over her, he will uh, abuse his authority. And in reality, when you think about it, in a kind of a bigger, broader concept within our world, this is exactly, in a lot of ways, the way that humanity has sort of digressed or fallen, is that women, for the most part, try to find their life and their meaning and their identity by way of relationships. And oftentimes, through heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak, because every relationship at some point that's being found or trying to be found within another man at some point will collapse in on itself. And when it does, when it breaks, your heart also breaks along with it. And men will take power and abuse it. And that will cause great pain and brokenness and destruction in many people's lives. And this is what God says, the result of turning away from me and someone look at this and be like, well, well, that's mean that God would make them go down this path. Look, if I can just put it this way, really what God is saying is that these are the natural consequences. God says, there's, the way I designed you so that you would love and flourish in community and build and take care of one another. But what happens is that if you turn away from me, you don't flourish in life. You end up actually crushing others. And rather than living, death comes in. Rather than flourishing, languishing happens. Men crush and are oppressive to women. This is one of the reasons why oftentimes women are taken advantage of or abused or raped or molested because a man is on a power trip. He's wanting to exercise power over somebody else or over another human being. And oftentimes women, why oftentimes their hearts are fragile is because they desperately want relationship from somebody and want to be satisfied within that relationship. But at some point it falls apart. Now, the Bible basically describes that in this context, death enters. It's one of the points that when God says, the day that you do this fruit, in other words, the day in which you turn away from my voice and live, you will die. And a lot of Bible scholars have pointed out that there's at least three different ways in which death has happened for humanity. First, 
form of death is spiritual death. Or I'm going to use another word, alienation, or another word which you can use instead of that is exile. But the idea of alienation and exile and death really are kind of all synonymous terms. To turn away from something and lead, be led into a place where it's away from life is actually a form of alienation or exile. And so there's, first of all, spiritual alienation. One of the most tragic verses in the Bible, in what we had just read, or actually didn't read, but we alluded to in chapter 3, is it says, And Adam and Eve heard the voice of God, and they hid. It's tragic. Here they were designed to be in relationship with God, to be in loving, kind, embrace with God. And yet now, rather than hearing the voice of God and running to God, to life, they heard the voice of God, and ran from God. That is a sign of something gone bad. Think about it this way, in a personal level. Let's say an old boyfriend or old girlfriend or an old friend, old husband, old wife, you heard, say you're at Trader Joe's, and you heard them at the end of the aisle, or you saw them at the end of the aisle. But you've got deep pain. There's a deep brokenness between you and this other individual that things are not right between the two of you, they're not okay, and that by hearing their voice or by seeing them, you ran and hid. That is a sign of deep brokenness. And this is what happened with Adam and Eve. They ran from God because of this deep death, alienation, exile, and brokenness. The second type of brokenness or alienation is psychological alienation. This is kind of the idea of our mind, the way that we think, our emotional well-being, and what we see with this is it says that immediately after they fell and they turned away from God, it says that they went out and they found fig leaves in order to cover their nakedness. This is that uh, prior to that, it says that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. That's one of the most fascinating verses to me. Um, because here it, it, it is completely, it completely upends everything in our culture, right? Nobody hangs around naked and unashamed. Nobody, unless you're like nine months old, all right? Like, there's something lost when a child, you know, grows up a little bit and be like, oh my gosh, I need a diaper on. But the point of the matter is, is adults, nobody hangs around naked and ashamed. And the reason for that is because we are all deeply aware of our flaws. We try to cover them. But it's not just physical flaws. It's not just skin deep flaws. I mean, all of us have things that we look at our bodies and we're like, I don't, I don't like that. I don't like that mole, or I sag here, or there's other parts about my body that I'm not happy with here, or we try to cover them up, and we wear baggy clothes, or we wear tight clothes, or whatever the case is. We try to figure out ways to kind of cover up these areas of shamefulness. But it doesn't end with the skin. It goes deep into our hearts. There are things about our lives that we are deeply ashamed of, that we wish nobody ever saw and that is psychological alienation. We are not the people we want to be. And I remember a time in my life, a lot of times, um, the older we get, the more aware of this we become. Um, so, for example, I remember when I was young, maybe a young Christian, maybe in my late teens, I, I remember um, God doing great work in my life. And I remember, I, I remember at one point, I kind of came to sort of this like a spiritual assessment of my life. And I'm like, okay, I, I think I'm doing really good. I'm progressing really good. Like, I don't... I don't say the F word anymore, and I, I threw away all my, like, my, my bad, like, back then it was, like, like albums. Like, I, I threw away all my bad albums and my cassette tapes. I'm just listening to, like, Striper and Christian music, and I'm doing really good, and I try to avoid Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and all those other, like, lame 
Christian artist. I'm like, I'm doing really good in my walk with Jesus. I'm reading the Bible all the time. I'm memorizing scripture. I'm doing all of these things. I remember at this one point, kind of thinking about my life. I'm like, I'm doing really good. Taking great spiritual inventory. I'm doing wonderful in my walk with Jesus. And then the fact of the matter is, is the older you get, and for me, I remember that one of the times that it began to really, it began to come so clear to me how messed up and how broken I was. The first real awareness of this on a personal level, was when I got married. Because I began to realize how selfish I really am. Like, how my ways, when, when somebody else comes into my life and begins to uh, put roadblocks in my life, or my progress, or things that I want to do, or my enjoyment, or my desires, or my passions, or uh, whatever the thing is, I, I find myself getting really frustrated, and I would find myself bringing deep pain to my, my wife, the one that I loved. And, and, and it gets worse because the older I get, now you add you know, years of marriage to my life. And not only that, but it gets even worse and more complicated because now I got kids. And now that my kids, you know, when your kids are young, you can get away with a lot. All right, let's just put it that way. You can get away with a lot. You can be like, all right, kids, just go off the bed. Uh, and really what you're doing is you're saying, I want me time. I'm going to watch TV. I don't want you around because you're kind of noisy and making a lot of noise. And I just want to rest and relax. And the kid, you know the kids aren't going to get hurt. But the older they get, the less you can get away with. And the more you kind of find yourself maybe potentially pushing the scenario further, and you end up breaking and hurting hearts. And it boils down to this deep-rooted selfishness that we all have. And then when you begin to see the pain that you cause in other people's lives, you begin to realize, I'm deeply flawed. I'm a deeply broken, flawed man. And I don't know how to fix it. And this is the idea that basically what happened in the book of Genesis is that they were psychologically alienated. In other words, who they were, who, they, who God created them to be, there was a disjunction between who they were and who they were actually acting out to be. In other words, there's a brokenness. And this is what we see in our lives as human beings. We are deeply broken, deeply flawed people. And then the final thing is we see is social alienation or societal alienation. If you want to think about this in kind of a larger context, it's the idea that God created the neighborhood, if you would, so that it would flourish and that within this neighborhood, this global neighborhood, if you would, of human beings populating planet Earth, that it would be filled with the glory of God where people would love each other, show kindness to one another. When someone's hurting, their needs would be able to be taken care of by this great body of people that would be like, I'll be there to help you and I'll make you a boysenberry pie because you're having a hard time. And the reality is, is that's not how humanity works. We take advantage of people. And this is what we see in the story of Genesis, is that Adam and Eve, immediately after they sinned against each other, God goes to Adam. He's like, what happened? He's like, it wasn't my fault. It was her fault. He can't even say her name. He doesn't even say Eve. He's like, it's that woman over there. He betrays her. And this is the brokenness that we have in this world, that we, rather than serving and caring for one another, i.e. the neighborhood, our neighbor, we take advantage of them. And if we do show kindness, there's oftentimes with a desire to get something back from them. So in other words, we oftentimes display love, but it's a selfish love, meaning we give in order to get 
back something from somebody. It's not this genuine, overflowing love that just says, I am here to bless, to love, to show kindness, to take care of, to carry your burdens because you matter. That's not how humanity works. Humanity is broken, and we break each other, and we take advantage of each other. And when people break us, we build up walls, we build up resistance, we fire back, we gripe, we complain, we counterattack. We're in this alienation. It's within this alienation that Adam and Eve are experiencing that God says, I'm going to eradicate the evil that has infected you like a virus. I'm going to get rid of it. And the way I'm going to get rid of it is one will come who will crush the head of the devil, but in doing so, he himself will be crushed. The next promise that we see arises in the story of Israel. Fast forward a little bit. God calls uh, Abraham. Some of us are familiar with Father Abraham and many sons and many sons of Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. There we go. All right. Um, Abraham has a grandson. His name is Jacob, a.k.a. Uh, Israel. And he's got lots of sons and family members and becomes sort of a nation, this big tribe, this tribe that begins to multiply, begins to spread out. They end up um, being emancipated from Egypt. Uh, They're being oppressed. God says, I'm going to deliver you, rescue you out of Egypt because you guys are the sons of Abraham. And by the way, I'm going to call you to be my family. You're going to be my nation. And as being my nation, you're going to be like this light set upon a hilltop and and those that see you acting in relationship to me, in proximity, in relational uh, community with me, they will see the greatness of God. And Israel is like, yes, we will be your nation, God. And the idea behind that was so that as the world can see this nation that lives in covenant with Yahweh, they would see this picture of life being lived out and flourishing But here's the problem. Israel ends up becoming and acting like every other nation slash state slash empire. In other words, Israel ends up becoming just like Egypt. So by the time you get to Solomon, Solomon's doing what? He's multiplying wives. He's building stables. He's multiplying his military expenditures. This is a mega empire state that Solomon has built. And guess what it's doing? It's crushing its neighbors instead of. Loving them. So Israel falls apart. And at some point within the history, they end up losing everything. The capital of Israel was a city called Jerusalem. Most of you guys are familiar with that. And it's kind of funny because Jerusalem is, is like always in the news. Always in the news. Even today. It's been in the news for thousands of years now. But back then, what happened in Jerusalem was God allowed this great, massive, ancient, um, mega-empire arise called the Babylonians, and they came from the east, and they swept up Israel and just completely dominated and destroyed and ruined the people of Israel. And this whole massive metropolis called Jerusalem was completely decimated. And so the picture that we find ourselves in the next passage, I want you guys to turn to real quick, is Lamentations chapter 1. And it's a story in which um, a guy by the name of Jeremiah, he's a prophet. And what you need to know a little bit about the prophets, that the prophets basically 
A lot of times they worked outside of the system of the people of Israel because a lot of times what was happening in the basic nation of Israel is that they were going the way of all the other nations. They were not loving Jehovah. They were not serving God. I mean, there are moments and periods and times throughout the people of Israel's history, uh, especially in the region of Judah, where they were turned back to God. But for the most part, by and large, Israel was not interested in relationship with God. In fact, Israel was oftentimes likened, so by the time you get to the book of Hosea, Uh, Israel is likened to a woman that was married by Jehovah God, given all sorts of riches and bought brand new clothing and makeup and given money and given food and a banquet and all this amazing stuff. And yet Israel basically says, no, thank you. I want to go sleep with the other nations. And Hosea basically says Israel becomes like a prostitute, just giving herself away to everything other nation except Yahweh. So what you have in the book of Lamentations is Israel has, Jerusalem has just completely been decimated. And again, talking about the subject or the community of grief and loss, and here's what's happening, is that grief and loss has literally reached its climax in the book of Lamentations chapter one. So Jeremiah is looking out over this ancient city that's literally smoldering and broken down and walls are crushed and destroyed. It's rubble. So if you've seen any pictures of on the news of like what's happened in Palestine after a bombing from Israel or in Israel after a bombing from Palestinians or in Afghanistan after ISIS has kind of gone through in the region of Syria or Iraq. All of these images of just pure rubble is what Jeremiah is looking out over this ancient city that was once the place of God. It's gone. The closest thing that you and I can liken it to is the World Trade Centers. That sense of loss, that sense of vulnerability, that sense of we are not this great nation that can outflank our enemies. We are vulnerable, deeply vulnerable. This is where Jeremiah found himself just devastated. And here's what he says. It says, Jerusalem, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Her uncleanness was, in verse 9, was her skirts. And the picture here that Jeremiah is painting. Now, remember a lot of times these prophets, they would speak, and a lot of times they were sort of like poets as well. And they would speak, and what they would oftentimes operate as is people that would help uh, the people to grieve, but not just simply grieve, but also to count their losses in the context of Jehovah that wants to restore. Does that make sense? That, yes, we've got to calculate and count our losses, but in the context of a God that also graciously, lovingly desires to restore. This is what Jeremiah basically says. He says, she, her, her uncleanness is in the skirts. And the imagery here is that of a prostitute, a street walker who has a high skirt, maybe leather with glass shoes. And here's what he's saying. This is her uncleanness. She is like a prostitute. Her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. The theme in chapter one of the book of Lamentations in the midst of this great moment of grieving and national sorrow is that of no comfort until you get to Isaiah chapter 40, which is believed to be one of these great messianic chapters that anticipates by way of promise that God has not forsaken her grief. I want you to think about this. 
Because we all have ways in which we process our loss and our grief and our pain, our sorrow. But have you ever thought about how God processes grief, sorrow, pain alongside us? That's what God is basically doing here in the book of Isaiah. This is what Isaiah and Jeremiah, these great prophets, are basically calling Israel to imagine that Jehovah doesn't just simply abandon his people to their own, but he, in the most profound ways, promises to come alongside in the midst of them. And here's what Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, starts off by saying, Comfort, comfort, my people, says Yahweh. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. Verse 3, now again, to think of the idea, the iniquity, her sin, her, uh, her autonomy, her sinfulness, her self-centeredness is actually what has brought upon herself this sense of discomfort. Does that make sense? And what God is saying is he's going to the very source of what's caused the discomfort and the brokenness, and he says, your iniquity, your sin has been forgiven. He goes on and points out, this is a voice of one cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted and every mountain will be made low and even ground will become level and the rough places plain because the glory of the Lord will be revealed. The glory of God, the beauty of God will begin to be seen the most unique ways of what the prophet is imagining. So we should think of it this way. Isaiah speaking in a period of time in which Israel is undergoing great national crisis, sorrow, loss, and grief. I don't know if any of you are in moments or states like that or places like that in your life where you're dealing with the sense of loss, the reality of something is gone. Your life, in other words, will not be the same again as it once was. It'll be different. And yet, the great story of the Bible is that death, the thing that we fear, the dread most, is really ultimately not the end. And what the prophets were calling Israel, as well as us, to imagine is that we have a God that has the final word. Death doesn't, disease doesn't, decay doesn't, God does. And God is basically saying, I will restore, I will bring back my glory. It will be revealed. In verse 9, he says, Go up to the mountains of Zion, Herald the good news. Lift up the voice with strength of Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift up. Fear not, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. The picture is that of gospel. When you read that passage where it says the good news, God's saying go to the mountains and shout from the mountaintops the good news. It's declaring the gospel. God has not abandoned this nation as they deserved. Is not forsaken. But instead, in replacement of what they deserve comes these promises of God saying, one day I will restore everything. I will bring healing in place of brokenness. I will bring joy in the place of sorrow. I will bring peace in the place of disorientation. I will bring you back home in the place of dislocation. This is what God states. And then the final thing I want to read in verse 10, it says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules him. Behold, his reward is with him, and he recompenses before him, and he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and he will carry them. And so the prophet Isaiah is basically imagining one of these days, the way that God will take care of the grief, the sorrow, the loss within this community of grief and pain is that one day God will come in great glory healing glory, 
and he will shepherd his people like a good shepherd. And this is where we finish our story with Jesus because this is exactly what Christmas is all about. This is what the Bible claims. The Bible claims that God has acted decisively, beautifully through Jesus. It's one of the reasons why the beginning of the book of John describes Jesus as being the glory of the unseen God or the invisible God, that Jesus in Christ, we have seen the beauty of this God. It's one of the reasons why Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, he actually declared one point at one moment. He says, I am the good shepherd. These are all Old Testament passages by which he's basically saying all of those passages that you guys were aware of in your history, in which in moments of crisis and chaos and pain and hardship and suffering, when God said that he would come and he would decisively act and heal, Jesus is basically saying, it's me. So let me finish with this thought. Because I don't know what your thoughts are about God, or who he is, or how he deals with suffering and pain. But we have to tackle this because we are a community of people of pain, of hardship, of challenge, of difficulty. And we have all sorts of ways by which we try to narcoticize ourselves away from pain and suffering into some sort of altered state rather than dealing with it head on and dealing with it in a way that syncs up with God's promises. And this is what the hope of Christmas is all about. I want to read a passage and finish. It's a passage from a gal by the name of Dorothy Sayer. Some of you guys are probably familiar with her. She says this. It's this amazing passage. Just listen to what it says. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. I want you to think about this. Just meditate on this thought, this reality for just a moment. That for whatever reason, we don't know why we suffer. I mean, that's the big, great question of our era. It's like, okay, why is there so much pain and suffering and hardship and challenge and difficulty and hardness and weightiness within this world? We don't know the answer to that. And it has oftentimes led people to all sorts of assumptions that, well, maybe God hates us. What this is saying, what the incarnation states is that that's the one answer that we can remove off of the list. While we don't understand why God allows all this stuff, what we can understand is it cannot be that God is indifferent towards our pain. That cannot be an option. Because whatever the circumstances is that God chose to take his own medicine, chose to suffer, that's what the incarnation tells us, is that God came into this world, didn't run from it, didn't turn his back on it, wasn't indifferent towards it, but comes into this world, suffers, and dies, and finishes by saying, whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. Next slide. It says, he has himself gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work, the lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. And when he was a man, he played the man, and he was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all well worthwhile. And what the gospel basically declares to us, the good news, 
is that in the midst of our little community of pain, that we have a God that makes these profoundly big promises to undo it, to set this world to right. This is what we celebrate when we celebrate the birth of Christ. Christmas is not about consuming presents and eggnog and sweets and goods. Christmas is about celebrating this unbelievable miracle that actually can be believed, that God came into this world to do something about our grief and our pain, our suffering. Now remember, the grief, the pain, the exile, the suffering is a direct result of turning our backs upon God. And that has brought right judgment in Adam and Eve. It has brought right judgment upon Israel. In all those moments where Israel should have been a faithful wife and has basically turned their back on God, those moments when God said, I have every right legally to divorce you because in any other circumstance, a woman that has gone out on her husband as many times as you have legally is okay to divorce. But God says, I won't. I would rather be with you and suffer deeply than to give you away and abandon you. And on the cross, we see to the extent that God has gone to bear the suffering for our brokenness, for our sin, for our rebellion. And what that teaches us, that the incarnation, God coming into this world, is this profoundly moving love story that God cares about us to such a degree that he will suffer and die, bearing our sin, our judgment, our shame, our death, in exchange give us life and a home instead of alienation, and peace in exchange of pain, and glory in exchange of shame, and healing in exchange of brokenness. This is such good news that we have this God that we can be honest and vulnerable to. So I want to finish. I want us all to stand. We're going to sing. We'll respond. We have communion in the back for us to just Remember to the extent in which God has gone to bring about a transformation in our life.